Like that, 100 episodes of the Development by David podcast and today I'm marking my 100th episode and I'm inviting you into my house to shoot this very special episode. We're doing it live from my living room and that's because I have a very familiar face to reintroduce you to, David Galbraith. But today, he is not the guest, he is my esteemed host because today I'm going to be sharing my story. I'm going to share The Development by David. Welcome in. This episode is sponsored by New Life MMA Gym in Maryhill. I've been the most vulnerable and transparent that I've ever been. I've had to be as confident as possible and as focused as possible and that's through all the physical and mental training that I've had through this guy at his gym. If you want the same, head along to New Life Gym in Maryhill. Welcome back to another episode of The Development by David Podcast. Wait a minute guys, um, this is my podcast today. Welcome to The Development by David Podcast. Um, I'll be ho- hosting this podcast today and I'll actually be interviewing um, an amazing guest who is usually a host, David McIntosh. <laughs> and I'm being interviewed by previous guest, one of my most played and respected guests on the podcast, David Galbraith. Um, this is the tables have literally turned, and this is an amazing opportunity for your your hit the century mark, David, which is a remarkable achievement. Um, in the in the podcast world, I think one of you told me uh, at one point. I think it's like most people maybe don't get by how many podcasts when they start? So I believe 1% of podcasters make it past episode 5. Of that 1%, a further 1% make it past episode 20. Wow. So by doing 100 episodes, yeah, we've bypassed that, mate. So you're at the, the century mark and you have had some phenomenal guests over the years and, um, you know, some, some of the most amazing people that you could imagine. And um, just give us a could you give us a bit of insight into some of the, the people that you've had on your chair? Well, I need to give credit to my first ever guest, Jen Gillies Pemberton. She was an amazing charity owner that had this amazing transformative story that I heard before I had the podcast, and that ignited a kind of feeling of solace and hope for me. So when I started the podcast, it made sense to interview her a very first kind of relatable role model. Then I realised the power of relatable role models and I started interviewing friends and close contacts and that transgressed into my idols, my literal idols, Sir Tom Hunter, Scotland's richest man, Seth Godin, who I listened to on podcasts years before I ever started one, um, Sunita, the founder of Reebok, and local heroes again, stories that are very close to home and relatable just like yours. Um, yeah, I, just by having this platform and having people listen to it, reaching 100 episodes, I've got to interview genuinely people that have given me hope and chance to to do something bigger and greater than I ever thought would imagine so yeah I guess the, those are some of the names that I need to give a, a nod to including you mate and I appreciate that you know the recognition that you you have given me and one thing that was very obvious to me when we done a podcast was you are very skilled at what you do so it's no surprise to me you've you've made it to this point and you've been very successful as, as well along along the way um, very compassionate kind host someone who I trusted with my life when I came in obviously I know there's risk involved going on a podcast and putting your life out there 
telling people some of the you know speaking openly to, to the world about some of your um, kind of deepest and darkest experiences and you know I felt like it felt right for me coming onto the podcast and, and having you interview me and it had such a it did have a profound impact on me so like the changes that you have uh, the impact that you have isn't just on the people who listen it's on the people that you interview and that's from totally from my perspective and others that I've heard and I just want to add now that we've welcomed everyone into my home we're in Glasgow um, and this is not where I've lived all my life welcoming you into my, my home and now being the guest having to prepare and put myself into the persona of the guest I now learn how much of a privilege it is to have a voice to share your story um, and how special it feels to be at the other side of the table today and now and only now I've recognised how grateful I am as a host to have 99 others come in and feel that emotion so I really appreciate that you, you mentioned that to Forrest mate and that's obviously your amazing home it's, it's absolutely beautiful David and um, I feel it's a really nice touch for doing this on the 100th episode how does it feel for you today to be in your home doing your 100th podcast um, and being in the chair where you're actually being interviewed every time I blink I almost take a screenshot in my brain like the fact that I am using my story, using my voice, using other people's stories to help others is just an absolute privilege. It's nothing short of a privilege. And I grew up in an environment where I wasn't comfortable both my living circumstances and finding my voice. So the fact that I'm doing both at the same time to mark a milestone for me is genuinely worlds apart. Like I would lie in my single bed at night and close my eyes and this is exactly how the dream life would look and I'm surrounded by amazing genuinely amazing people including yourself and Andres who's filming today and I have the most wonderful friendship group um, who support me and back the podcast and mention me in conversations when I'm not around and I've got my wonderful sister who is so proud of me and sees me as a role model and used my story only three years ahead of hers to do the same and I have my dad who uh, he doesn't tell me directly how much he loves my podcast or listens to it or um, recognises what I do, but I hear through his comrades and his mates um, how much I mean to him. So being in my house, celebrating all of that, all the people in my life in an environment that I feel comfortable and proud of with three cameras and a good mentor, coach and friend in front of me, man, uh, I feel grateful, really appreciative and really grateful. And nervous, really nervous too, I won't lie. Um, this is going to be the most vulnerable I've ever been. Um, and I think it's only right to be so vulnerable given the fact that the whole premise and description of the podcast is to use origin stories as a self-development tool. I have self-developed. My origin story has helped me um, and recognising my origin story has allowed me to do that. So um, I feel vulnerable and nervous to share that, but it's only right to mark the 100th episode, mate. And I couldn't honestly picture or imagine a better person to do that than you, um, despite not, not knowing you for less than a year. Every single conversation we have had, I've learnt more about myself and unravelled more layers of the onion um, of my story. I feel like it's like, I know you have a gym, so this analogy is great. I use this analogy of like getting the storytelling reps in. So like doing a bicep curl, every time you, you curl the, the weight, you rip the muscle and then it grows back stronger and you have an extra layer, almost. Um, but every time I talk to you, I'm ripping that storytelling muscle. Um, I'm sharing a little bit more of myself, I'm being a bit more vulnerable um, and I grow back stronger and I can tell more of that story.
and that's because of the relationship and conditions that you've given me to do that mate so like I said I feel really proud that you're you're hosting this mate and you to me is someone who really embodies that principle and the reason why I say that is because the feeling is completely mutual when we interact and we, we have conversations I feel development myself I feel you know I'm a better version of myself and um, you know I just want to to put that right back at you so David just now and this current moment you know how would you describe yourself and with that I would like to you know ask you to describe kind of landmark events in, in your life because you know you are doing well for yourself you know you, you, you've got a podcast you know do a bit of comedy you've got you know a lot of different things going on could you could you just explain to, to the audience like what it is that you do and the, the some of the, your your greatest achievements are um and your in your own journey I'm at a point in my life where I want to introduce myself by not what I am, but by who I am. And I believe who I am today in 2023 and hopefully into 2024 and forevermore is someone that believes in creating a universal quality of life by providing stories, emotions and knowledge to those who need it most. I feel that I never had a lot of that. Um, I saw that other people had access to stories, emotions, um, and feelings I'd never had access to and using this podcast and everything else that I do that I'll touch on feels like a, a worthy vehicle of that. So my day job is a management consultant at a huge organization called KPMG um, who truly backed me in this podcast. I'm essentially one of their poster boys and I realize how much of a privilege that, that is and I'm not being vain when I say that. Um, uh, so through that I get to help organizations improve outcomes for the people that, that work there. Um, but also within that organization, I'm the founder and chair of a social mobility network, a basically an employee network of over a thousand people who come from backgrounds just like mine and yours, who don't typically get access to workplaces like that or industries like that because it's previously been gatekept by um, the Etonians or private schooling or Russell Group universities or universities as a whole. I joined there as an apprentice. I always say I snuck through the back door. Um, so I get to chair and lead an agenda that's so close to my heart, giving people, if I were to describe what social mobility is, social mobility is the amount of ease or friction between an individual and their awareness, therefore access to opportunity. So that's why I do this podcast. I want to reduce the friction between an individual and their awareness and therefore access to opportunity. Um, I also do stand-up comedy. Um, that's just a complete self-development factor, but also humour and Comedy has been something that's been so integral in my entire life. I can remember being a class clown and being one of the darkest kind of jokers in the class. But I realised that's because I had to use humour to band-aid some of the things that I'd seen and felt growing up. And, and now I want to be the purveyor of that to other people. I want to do stand-up and talk about such sensitive subjects that I do. Like I talk about my mum um, and I talk about my dad and my sets and I want to give solace and comfort and happiness to people that might be facing that too so I guess those are the vehicles that make that happen and I guess some of the biggest milestones in my life is that um, I've been recognised as the UK's number one apprentice by BPP in 2020 I have been listed in the Business Insider 35 under 35 ranked the 20th most wow. entrepreneurial Scot um, and I don't have a business like I'm the 20th most entrepreneurial Scot and I, 
that, that's, that's a, I guess that's a business, right? Um, I've been ranked as the top 20 accountant in the UK by Accountants Age. Um, and there's 35 under 35. I won Management Consultancies Association's Apprentice of the Year in 2021. Um, I attended the Burberry Awards, um, or the Burberry British Diversity Awards, and I was shortlisted as the youngest member um, in the Inspirational Role Model of the Year category. Um, I get in people who work for the biggest organisations, like this Senior Director at Barclays mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and I got to meet the Queen in 2020. I got to share this very story um, and a snapshot with her, and that's really integral in my story. Um, but last but not least, I think something that really is close to home is that just a couple of weeks ago, I attended Presswood Academy at their senior prize giving. And I got to be their special speaker or special guest um, to share my story to the senior members of the audience or senior members of the school that were there. And I just remember being in that school maybe five years before and Sir Tom Hunter was the celebrity guest that shared his story. Wow. And he put a rocket, literally a, a rocket in my ass to achieve my biggest ambitions. Um, hearing his story and how close to home it was really was that catalyst for me. And the fact that I was asked back to be that person um, and the teachers recognising me for that was just, yeah, my greatest achievement. Um, and then, yeah, I guess th- those are the things that I can say that's what I am. Yeah. Um, but who I am is someone that believes in a universal um, access and awareness to opportunity, feelings, stories and emotions. And I really like how you, you speak about like, who, who you are and that is something that, you know, when we've been talking about you know, doing this podcast is like, I know really who you are. Like, we spar together, we train together, you, we open up a lot. And I think it's important as well. Like, that's the best part. Like, so we hear, you know, all these amazing things, like these kind of like face value successes and hard earned and well deserved. And ultimately, the best part of you is, is who you are. And that's something that we, I know that I can appreciate and I would really like well, for everyone to appreciate as well. And I would like to talk about, about you know, you as a person and your own personal experiences. And I know we touched on you know, some things that you're, you're growing up. Let's rewind for a moment and, and talk about who who was David before all of this, how, how did this come to fruition? Like, how how did you... I mean, you're, you're still a young guy and your, your story's ongoing. What was school like for you? School itself was challenging. Really challenging. Um, especially primary school at first um, because I was never really supported at primary school. I was very substandard in terms of academic achievement. And I kind of, I remember accepting that as a fate at the age of like eight or nine or 10. I am from this specific background. I've come from a council estate and my mum and dad didn't have jobs. And I was really ashamed of that in, sc- in primary school. And I wasn't doing really great academically. Um, and I kind of accepted that and realised that that's just what people from my background are, unintelligent unambitious and kind of nihilistic to their to their environment and I remember it's maybe primary six where I got bumped up maths class yeah. to like from the like the bottom one to like one of the top ones and it really created this feedback loop of oh David you're competent at something 
you can improve, you can transform, you can get better. But socially at school, I was still kind of very aware of my upbringing. Um, I remember being ashamed to bring like own brand crisps to school because there was a signal that we didn't have much or I remember getting free school meals at primary school and that was a signal that we didn't have much. Mm. My mum was also a dinner lady at that school on and off and that was a signal that we also didn't have much. You know, that kind of transgressed into my friendships and my um, extroversion. I remember not really having many friends mm. and not being willing to have many friends. I had one friend called Graham um, and he was my kind of really close friend. We, 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 we spent most summers indoors playing Xbox. We're very introverted in nature. And as we moved into secondary school, I remember just like every secondary school, all of the different primary schools come together and your pot of friends are now much bigger and you have much more agency and control over who you spend your time with. I remember when we trans transformed from primary school into secondary school, just by nat nature, he went off and found a new group. But right. not only did he do that, he did turn around and say, David, well, why don't you join us? There's more, more people. And this was uh, when I was about 11 or 12. And I remember walking into school. My, my clothes were funded by um, Poppy Scotland's and Combat Stress. They gave us vouchers. So I was wearing like the kind of unbranded clothes from Primark. And I remember just being ashamed of that. And being ashamed that I had to walk into school being ashamed of not fitting in. So when he turned around and gave me that hand to join him, I said no. And at the same time, I didn't really grow um, physically in height until I was like 16. So I was really, really small and I was picked on by um, the, the six years at school. I remember getting the bus to school and someone threw a hamburger at me on one of my first weeks. And I remember also these older people also put washing tablets in my bag at school and hit me in the back and burst my bag in just the first few weeks. And I'm not victimising myself, but right. as a small, insecure young person, that already makes you feel like you don't belong. So I remember in school, every single day I would get my lunch, my free school meal, and I would hide under the stairs at lunch, and I'd eat it by myself. And I was called one of the weirdos. We all, you all, everyone had that group of weirdos mm. in, in, in school. And I remember for the first year of school, yeah, I ate lunch under the stairs. And I loved that. Mm. I had a love-hate relationship with it. Mm. It gave me a lot of time to think and be by myself and build my character and understand that things were tough. Like I really took stock of that and understood how hard that was. Oh. Having no tribe or community and things at home, I didn't have a tribe or community. And was aware that I wasn't good enough by the social standards. So I remember my dad would pick me up every single day or a couple of times a week and he would buy me a hot dog and he would take me to the airport, Presswick Airport where I grew up to watch the planes and with binoculars and that's such a happy moment for me because at least I had a friend of my dad and it took me away from school so no eyes were on me and no one would notice me under the stairs because I was away yeah. but it was difficult the early moments of school was really difficult and I would go home and academic achievement wasn't really recognised by my parents only because they weren't academic themselves they both left school before the age of 16 with no qualifications they couldn't coach me on what I needed to coach on they couldn't talk to me about um, literature or algebra or French or computer science so 
I was taking work home and there was no good feedback loop of hey, how important academia was either. So I really had to learn from a, such an early kind of moment that I had control over my own outcomes um, and that because of my social situation and my kind of environment at home, I really learned to believe that I'm personally responsible for every single outcome in my life and I think that transgressed at one point in my life later on which I'm sure we'll talk about into like a really kind of strong superpower of mine kind of deviate from the tribe be self-sufficient and finding my way but yeah school at first was a horrible time for me it really yeah. was um but again I, w I wouldn't change that do you think that the that the social aspect and I'm, I'm trying not to believe with the question just trying to interpret based on like what you're telling me like and how i would feel about it do you do you think that you know the the, the social aspect that was it was the most challenging or the lack of like socializing yes it really was um and I'm, I'm not playing a pity party because I understand this is the environment of most schools growing up. There's social hierarchies, there's the popular group, there's then the sporty group, and then there's everyone else. And then there was me, really. And knowing that I didn't belong, or knowing there was such a huge amount of distance to travel to get to that pinnacle, seemed um, debilitating. Um, it kind of made me lose hope. It made me realise that I was very much by myself. And I was really insecure growing up as well. I was overweight as a child. I had really long hair and told you my clothes weren't very nice. Were you, were you aware of your, your appearance? Was that something that you are super aware of my appearance? Would you say you were, were you being sensitive to it? I was very sensitive to it. I would wear baggy jumpers and mm. I was part of a skateboard kind of community. Or I used to skateboard growing up and you know, skateboarding clothes are very much hats on, long hair, baggy clothes. And that kind of hid how I looked. If I was wearing a hat and a big jumper. I just didn't want to be seen, mate. That's all, that's all it was, knowing. And I think that's a, a huge component of people from our backgrounds is they're so embarrassed by their lack of that when they're in social environments, they don't want to disrupt. They don't want to take risks. They don't want to be bold and performative. Um, they don't want to attract attention to themselves. So I guess that's why I had under the stairs and why I kind of layered myself in abundance of clothing. Uh, and often, often left to school with my dad um, at lunch times and during social situations um, and that transgressed into me not being a natural performer right doing this having a voice that's a, a million miles away from what I could imagine me ever doing solo talks at school I would pull sickies because I used to have a, a speech impediment I used to have a stutter um, I used to mumble a lot and I had a girlfriend maybe towards the end of high school who would make me very very conscious of that she would say David um, why are you not speaking properly or David can you speak properly or come on David um, stop mumbling um, so that kind of made me regress into that shell so I was always aware of not only my physical prowess and social situations but also my verbal prowess uh, so to know that I'm doing 100 episodes of a podcast speaking all over the country um, with my idols including going back to my school is genuinely mesmerising um, yeah Do you feel like you had a voice growing up? No I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a voice growing up. Um, and I guess that was because of what I 
what was going on at home. I was very much so. So for context, sake, my 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 mom and dad um, had me when I was much when they were much older. So my dad would have been um, forty one, and my mom would have been a few years young, uh, younger than that. My dad grew up in the poorest part of the UK, if not if not the UK, it's Scotland, Kilmarnock, in a place called um, Shortleys. He grew up in a bed. Um, where he slept in a bed with his five siblings who would wear workwear jackets at night. Mm. His dad would go into the rafters of the loft to cut down wood to keep themselves warm at night. And he was battered black and blue every single day by his alcoholic dad. And he would have to be the the man of the household. Mm. Essentially, he had a paper round, a milk run, and a ginger bottle run, all at the age of like eight, um, giving all his money back to the parents, his parents. And then he went into the army and served in the Falklands war and served um, in Northern Ireland and guarded Buckingham Palace. He left the army with PTSD and depression and really struggled. Yeah. Really, really struggled to find his place in the world. He tells, tells me stories about running down um, a street in London and sees a man putting a burger, half-eaten burger into a, a bin. He goes into the same bin and eats the burger because he had so little. Yeah. Um, he really, really struggled. Um, and when my mum, she was the youngest of six. Um, she was natively hardwired, kind of cushioned, yeah. um, and complacent. Shouldn't leave the family nest till her thirties, and they never had much either. Uh, they had a really struggling household, um, so they got together out of kind of misalignment or misfortune. I don't know. Like it was a kind of maybe maybe not misfortune, but there were two kind of rugrats who kind of found themselves together. So when I was born, I was born a twin, and I was born eight weeks premature. So even from that point of view, when my my brother passed away at birth, and I was in an incubator for six to eight weeks, yeah. uh, weighing two pounds the size of my dad's hand, with my mum always dying, having me, my dad losing his job because he had to take care of us, and my dad burying my my brother my brother with no one at the funeral in the rain by himself, because we didn't have money to host a funeral. Coming from that into the world into a world where my dad suffered greatly mm. from mental health conditions PTSD depression and, and ultimately alcoholism mm-hmm. um, which was I, I understand was a complete vice to mute yeah. the feelings that needed medical and professional treatment again coming from our background they don't have access to that we don't have access to their luxuries uh, uh, to self self medication yeah that, that was his therapy so I would often see him um, drunk every single night Right. And I seen that ha- play a toxic relationship with my mum, who was a so she was completely sober, um, to the point that they would argue every single night. Right. Um, and he was always the dominant voice. Yeah. Um, and he, he scared me. I was this little, small, vulnerable young man, and I always wanted to make my dad proud as well. He never told me he loved me, and I was never shown physical affection. So the only way I could ever gain his love and respect was to respect. And take his side at every opportunity. So growing up, even when he would do and say things that were wrong and were in line with mistreating my mum, I would take his side. And that casted this weird belief in me that from such an early age that I don't really have a voice because I'm 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 following the voice and the opinions and the moral standpoint of someone else, especially yeah. someone that I don't really believe in. 
So I really struggled from that point onwards to have a voice because even on the deepest, darkest of subjects and environments and, and, and conditions, I was going away from what I really believed in. Yeah. So there was moments in my childhood where my mum and dad were terrified. It was terrifying. Um, my dad would... My mum and dad just didn't get on. They, they shouldn't have been together. And they stayed What's terrifying about that. Because my dad had a, a physical prowess and a, a verbal prowess. Um, and when you're when you're on alcohol, when you're drunk, it's almost relentless. It doesn't end. You have infinite energy. And my mom would often go to her bed really early at night. Um, and my dad, I would hear my dad come upstairs and um, argue with my mom. And I would hear that every single night. Um, and it was scary. It was terrifying. I mean, my, my sister just did the same. What would you do when they were arguing? Um, I would hide. Again, I wouldn't have a voice. I would hide under, uh, as any as any kid would, I would hide under the, the blankets mm. until my dad came through to bring me into the conversation to which I would substantiate an opinion with his voice um, because I was scared of the repercussions of, 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 of not being aligned with his voice or not believing his voice. Um, so I remember hiding under the bed sheets, hoping, mm. pretending to sleep. My sister says she used to do the same. In fact, my sister didn't. Um, my sister didn't sleep in her own bed for a very long time of her childhood because of that fear. Yeah. And there's certain moments that I vividly remember whereby my dad was out. Like maybe once a month he'd go to the pub by himself. He would always drink in the house, mm. but once a month he'd maybe go to the pub and get rat arse drunk and come in and cause bother. And what my mum would do, would be to, she said, if you go out and get drunk, well, I'm going to lock the door. And he always chose the alcohol over mm. the prospect of being with his family or being locked out, and he, he did that. And I just vividly remember me and my sister and my mum curled up yeah. in a bed together whilst the door was locked. And I just had a banging and shouting. And sometimes my name was getting shouted, David, unlock this door. Bang, 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 late into the night when I had primary school or secondary school in the morning. And my mum would do a great job of soothing us. Mm. But there was times where I would go and open that door even though I didn't want to. Yeah. Again, aligning with the opinions and um, wants of my dad, not my mum, because I was just weirdly scared of him. Yeah. And I, it's not maybe scared, it's just maybe maybe that's doing how my disservice. I, I was scared but also just wanting his love and validation. And that was the only way that I could see that I could do that because academic academic performance didn't get love. Um, being a well-behaved boy in class didn't really get that love. But maybe siding with my dad, maybe that got me that love. Um, but there's also times where I didn't open that door and you're worried. Where's my dad going to sleep tonight? It's raining outside, it's December. He slept in the shed before, he's going to sleep there, he's going to bang the neighbour's door. Where's he going to go? Where's my dad going to go? And I'm, I'm eight years old, living with that uncertainty at night, not knowing if my dad's going to make it through the night, you know, what could happen in the, in the winter. Um, and then going to school the next day. Wow. And that transgressed um, throughout my kind of childhood. Um, but I, forg I forgive that hugely. Yeah. I forgive it immensely. Like my dad's life, he lost a brother. Um, he had a stroke. He saved lives in a London fire and got a commendation of bravery for it. He threw a dog in, out a window and took kids down in this burning house. He saved numerous lives 
during the Ebury Bridge bomb attack at Chelsea Barracks when the IRA attacked a bus um, going into the barracks. A, a, a young boy died in my dad's arms. He has seen and been through so much. Um, I understand why he had to medicate himself. Anyone would have to medicate himself um, or get at least professional help to, to get over what he, he's been through. The lack of... He's had no hope his entire life uh -huh. um, and he's had to medicate that feeling and I, I forgive him for instilling that fear in me. It's really shape the character of the superhero that mm. I think I can become. It's that there's traits in me that otherwise would lay dormant. Um so the fact that I've had these really difficult experiences, I can wake these traits of resilience resilience of of emotional regulation during tough times uh and of removing emotion from situations. I can wake those kind of traits when I need them because of that experience so I'm, I'm thankful of, of, of all that and I recognise and sympathise and apologise um, that my dad and my mum had to go through what they had to go through again two people that shouldn't have been together being together mm. economically yeah. um, for, for the kids because they were on their own benefits they needed to be together um, and that's just the nature of how it was mate I think it's like really admirable like of you to like say that and say you know I, I forgive my dad for these uh, for you know this behaviour effectively and you know these challenges that we went through and you know a lot of people wouldn't um, a lot of people can can carry a lot of resentment through their life um, particularly with parents the person who is supposed to love and care for you and you know be that influential role model and you know obviously you are following the lead of that influential role model in these situations stuck between a rock and a hard place felt pressured to make decisions have you learned to forgive yourself for some of those decisions you made as a child what I believe has allowed me just take a little sidestep actually what's allowed me to forgive him is probably the fact that I am where I am now in a really comfortable house. Like I grew up in a council estate whereby I was no one ever came came to my house. I had no friends, no girlfriends growing up. Even before I moved here six months ago, I never had a girlfriend because I was ashamed of the council house. My dad smoked in the house. There was torn couches. There was clutter everywhere. Toolbox sitting in the, the living room. Empty beer cans everywhere. My room was full of dog hair and it was the, the walls were stained through the smoke. Um, and it was just clutter, it was a hoarder's house um, I was ashamed of all that really deeply ashamed of all that deeply ashamed of how I dressed uh, my mum and dad never came to any parents night because either they were so we didn't tell them about it or two, we didn't want them there because we were so embarrassed of, of them um, which is horrible to say just because they never had jobs we were scared in case someone spoke to them another parent said oh what do you do for a job I don't have a job or uh, what do you do for um, a job oh we're on, on benefits I was, I was ashamed of that so given that I'm here and my house mm. that I'm so proud of that I'm welcoming three cameras a camera guy and a guest into my house that is yeah, that is ridiculous to me I never had a friend ever over at my house once which I think 14 year old David would say if he could project himself into the future and say this right now he would run around your way naked <laughs> <laughs> 
don't do it, baby. <laughs> he, he would, he would cry. He would gently burst out crying. He's got a safe space. He would burst out crying. He's got a safe space, and that is his where he can have his own routine. Because living with someone who is dependent on alcoholism, mm. they have a very different routine to someone who is a high performer up at six going to the gym every morning, mm. right? And thankfully, I could get up at six every day when I was living at home because I had a paper round from the ages of eight to 18. I was up every single morning, rain, snow or shine. And no matter when I had a puncture or um, when the weather was awful, my dad wasn't on to give me a run round like the other kids used to get. Mm. I had to get out every morning and brave that. Um, and the fact that I can embrace that between here and my, my place is amazing that I can create an environment where I've got a desk and mm. cameras that's conducive to a person that I've been wanting to become is, is, is amazing um, so go, to go back to your question um, the reason I don't resent these people in my life is because the distance travelled I'm at a point of emotional, financial and social security where I can be like I can forgive all that because they have mm giving me the tools to be where I am now. But say my life turned upside down, maybe I started to believe that people from me weren't academic, for people from my background weren't academic. Or started to believe that um, I didn't have agency over my own life. And I took a negative spiral of addiction, maybe mm. following my dad's or um, of maybe crime, for example. I then would maybe resent them because it's your fault I'm here. It's all your fault. Mm. But I'm also saying it's, it's also their fault that I'm here. So there's a weird dichotomy of, of outcomes, like a sliding door moment that took me one direction, but could have equally took me mm. the other direction. So I, I'm still saying it's your fault I'm here. Mm. But I can say that with a smile on my face because it's a positive outcome. But do I, do I, do I forgive myself? Um, I didn't then. I hated myself then, but only now I can sympathise for myself. Um, hearing the stories like yours and Stephen Beatty's and other people that had been through similar different things and understanding how they can make sense of their past and the tools that you've shared with me to make sense of the past I can forgive myself only now but again if I took that negative spiral I don't think I could forgive myself either it's only because I'm, I'm, I'm here I will. obviously there's, there's such a big contrast from young David and you know and who you are just now but there's also a lot of similarities I could imagine with, with who you are not like what you've achieved and and who you, you were as a child and you've obviously worked on yourself a lot but when would you say was was there a pivotal moment for you where things started to, to change there's a couple like there was one that planted the seed and then there was one that like watered the seed and then there was a sunlight to use that analogy but the seed was planted at the age of 11 mm. when I was um, at school and Sir Tom Hunter, Scotland's richest man, Scotland's first billionaire and a huge global philanthropist and guest of the podcast came to my school. And I was in this business class that got taken to this assembly hall and he shared meeting Bill Clinton partner with Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio and talked about, wow. billi talked about his billions and talked about his big charity and all the impact and I thought it must be nice it must be nice that's inspiring but it must be nice and then he said I'm from Newcombe like I'm from Ayrshire I used to sell groceries from the back of my dad's van and in trainers and I was like holy shit this guy is like just <laughs> like me and I literally perked up in my seat brought my shoulders back and 
every single word lacerating mm. my brain. Um, it was so inspiring to me. Talking about being a radiator and not a drain. Like, giving positive energy, no matter where you come from, is being positive and optimistic and and hopeful instead of being a drain and a victim. Becoming a victor and rising above what you, you kind of grew up in. I remember that. And he also said, it's better to ask for forgiveness than... No, it's better to... What is it? Better to ask for forgiveness than beg for permission. Wow. Better to ask for forgiveness yeah. and beg for permission. And yeah. what what that means is treat the world as permissionless. People don't have to say people don't have to say you you can't, you can't, you can't because of X, Y, and Z, because you're from this background, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. You don't need their permission. You don't need the validation of other people. So that one statement I remember just allow me to think people around me my friends who don't really want to be my friends or the people that are in my class who don't want to be my friends or the people in my council estate who don't believe that they can succumb to anything or the teacher's expectations I mean, it doesn't matter all that matters is how I view the world um, and how I view myself and my capability that was that was really important I remember running back to my, my class and googling what is an entrepreneur what is a philanthropist and no results because I couldn't fucking spell the thing. That was awful, awful <laughs> English. And the teacher came over and and and, and um, googled it for me. And I learned entrepreneur is someone that builds something from nothing, is a visionary, and um, accumulates wealth, financial or non-financial, from that. So I started selling um, tablet and fudge and stuff from my little council estate because I thought I'm going to be like Sir Tom Hunter. What can I do? Um, so I did that for a couple of weeks and then I started a paper round um, and I remember counting that money that I got from a paper round and from um, that tablet experience in my uncle Neil Forrester's house who's my mum's sister's ex-husband okay. and they, they were hugely important to me to me um, my auntie and my uncle Auntie Lynn and Uncle Neil we'll give them a shout out Auntie Lynn and Uncle Neil I, I love you guys you, you played such an integral part of my confidence but I remember they always wanted to hear about how well I was doing at school. They always wanted to hear what, what, what did you want to be when you grew up. And they, they also kept, uh, validated a lot of my capabilities. And I remember vividly counting this money. And they were like, David, you're good at counting money. You could be an accountant. They make a lot of money. Yeah. So there was two really important facets of that, yeah. which was a, a huge seed in my development was, David, here's a career you've never heard of before, an accountant. Because obviously there's drug dealers and dinner ladies and unemployed on my street. I don't know even the term accountant so my uncle gave me validation of or visibility of what that was um and that's something that's a career that has bigger prospects than what i saw around me but he also gave me validation of capability he said david do you have these skills these skills are valuable in the marketplace and thirdly actually he also said david they make a lot of money so it showed me how important those skills are in the wider domain and how I can cash them in to ease what was going on at home. All my mum's mental health conditions, she suffered with anxiety, was because she never had a job. Um, yeah. She was extremely vulnerable emotionally with me. And that was because she never had purpose. She yeah. never had, she was worrying when I had to put food on the table at times or had to clothe me. Um, same with my dad. So I thought, well, if I can become an accountant then I can uh, sort them out, ka-ching, ka-ching. So that was hugely important for me, hugely important for me. And I remember just just a couple of months later, I really reiter- reiterated the importance of that one moment. 
and we were talking about how my life should have taken two different mm. trajectories. This was one really important moment where that was tested. Two months later, my neighbour said to me, like all neighbours do on a council estate, right, or any any environment. So my best mate, Jordan Ashraf, his mum, Claire, um, said to me, David, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I just, obviously just found out an accountant was, so I puffed my chest and said, I'm going to be an accountant. And she went, oh, okay. What, like, are you sure that's realistic? Pick something a bit more, like, realistic. Your mum and dad didn't go to university. They didn't get school grades. They don't have jobs. How will you be an accountant? And I guess if I never had that interaction with my uncle for a few months before, mm-hmm. I would have, I would have dropped off and been like, maybe you're right. You're right. People like us don't do things like that. I've been so silly. But because my uncle said, you have those skills and validated them and mm-hmm. made me kind of bite down in the proverbial gum shield and think to myself, fuck you, I'm going to do what I can. Mm-hmm. And that, that led me on to my third pivotal point, which was um, work experience at KPMG where I work as, a, as an accountant. So um, I got to leave London. Uh, literally, I got to leave Scotland for the very first time. Mm-hmm. I got to put on a suit. Uh, it was from Primark. I think it was blue on top and black on bottom. It was awful. And I got taken down to Queen Mary University Halls in London. So it was the first time I got to even live by myself. Yeah. And I was uh, taken to Canary Wharf, which is a financial kind of district from London, where skyscrapers, guys in suits. And I went from Poppy Scotland paid caravan holidays to a week in London, from clothing grants to wearing a suit. That gave me this crazy sense of self-importance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and it gave me an experience that no one else had in my school. Yeah, I had these childhood experiences that no one, right. uh, like to hope no one had um, in my school. I had this positive experience that was unique to me and gave me this weird competitive advantage, yeah. an edge and difference to everyone, mm-hmm. but in a positive way for once than everyone else. So I went back to school that, after that amazing work experience where I got white tree when you went. I was 16 years old. And actually my, my, my grandmother passed away of cancer that week. Right. And I had the choice to either go to her funeral, and she was someone I was so close with growing up. Yeah. My mum's mum, she was around every single week. She was my mum's best friend. Either I could go to her funeral or go to this work experience. And yeah. just because of that one decision, which was to go to yeah. KPMG, my life has changed forever. Yeah, they've given me such a hand up, not a hand out, with that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And going to that that place, seeing people dressed in suits and having aspiration, transgressed into my experience after that. Um, so I went back to, 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 to school. Mm-hmm. So that was over school. My summer, I went back to school with a skin fair haircut, with a blazer on, a tie on, right. and I lost a bunch of weight. And I was yeah. proud of it myself. I went back in school mm-hmm. with my chest puffed, thinking I can do whatever I put my wow. mind to. And at that point, I realized I was completely different. Yeah, I used to think I was different from a negative point of view, but now I realize I was different from a, a mindset and taste and traits point of view. Um, so the, the seed was planted by my uncle. It was watered. Sorry, the seed was planted by Sir Tom Hunter. It was watered by my uncle. And the sunlight was this amazing KPMG opportunity with the Social Mobility Foundation. Again, that's why I contribute to Social Mobility because this one charity called the Social Mobility Foundation really changed my life forever. And I am forever indebted to them. Very powerful message. And I mean, that is a very, that's quite a dramatic transformation as far as transformations go because these things can normally take years and, I mean, like, you went from, it sounds like, you know, a kid who's very self-conscious, overweight, kind of like BMXA, kind of like hoodie and stuff, kind of like skateboarder, just trying to get an image in people's minds, to, you know, like, losing weight, looking sharp, 
do you know what I mean? Like having a newfound confidence and like most of us has just been found through through words. But and, off, and environment as well. Environment, of course. Um but off the back of that, like a really difficult environment, like continuous trauma. So like continually being like probably socially exiled in school, would you say that's mm-hmm. the correct terminology? For a while at least. For a while at least. And then, you know, going home to a, a traumatic environment, lack of sleep, worry, anxiety, other ongoing issues with mental health, addiction, uh, like that's like quite prolonged, like, and then obviously that there was there still being like challenges within that as although you've put the suit on and you've changed your appearance and little stuff like that. But that must have like given some some rest to some of that, like at that point you might have did you feel like you had some breathing space at that point? I guess by nature of being that age as well, you kind of transform it into a man. Like I I, I grew. I started going to the gym so I had muscles. I had I started boxing as well. Uh, Ricky's boxing so I could throw a punch maybe not a great one but I could so I had this kind of not allowed to promote other gyms on my <laughs> podcast David but uh, I went to an anonymous gym into my... <laughs> um, no but that, I remember running it like and I went it was the evening two miles to go to that gym just to, to learn how to, to box um, and I, I, I love this Jordan Peterson quote and it's a boy becomes a man when his father dies and it doesn't have to be literal, it can be figurative. So that moment, the validation that I needed from my dad, the care and love that I needed from my dad, didn't need any longer. He right. died as the father archetype in my life at that moment in time. I became my own dad. Yeah. Because I could give myself the love, the validation, and the care that I never got, that I was so hopelessly searching for. So I kind of morphed into that character. Yeah. Um. So I think that's how I gave myself that breathing space is by renouncing the need to please that person and finding my own voice for once. Mm. Um, and I'm still developing my opinions on the landscape because I've been so shaped by my environment. But that was that was hugely important. Like that gave me breathing space and it was me that gave myself that breathing space. But again, it just takes one environment change or one word or one condition to just change, unlock everything for you, to give me a mindset of abundance instead of scarcity. Mm. And given the fact that we had no clothes, no foods, oh, of course I was going to have a scarcity mindset. Mm. It's such a luxury to have an abundance mindset because if you have a lack of things, you can only think one day at the time. If you have an abundance of things mm. mentally, physically, you can think strategically long term. So yeah, it was it was a, a good mechanism. For giving myself that beating space, now I think about it. And you spoke about, I think you did said um, some of the the words that Sir Tom Hunter used would really resonated with you in terms of like he was then able to connect with you through his background. And there'll be viewers from different ages, different walks of life who'll be watching this right now or whenever it is they listen to it. What message or what words would you use? What would what would you say to them that, you know, based on your experiences, mm. you think you could say that could impact them? I can only say this now because I've came out the other side of it, but being socially exiled, whether that was from my choice or through the choice of the 
popular intrigue was great because I became, by definition, extraordinary because I was doing things that were extraordinary. I became abnormal because I did things that were abnormal. I became unconventional because I did things that were unconventional. And that was either by choice or by being ostracized from the tribe. So I found at the age when I started to put the soon, get my mind together, I started to listen to podcasts, um, which weren't a thing back then. Um, Rogan had one. My, my favorite podcaster, Stephen Bartlett and Chris Williamson, didn't have a podcast. Who I listened to was a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary V. Everyone who's in the kind of product company space will know who that is. Um, so this was about 2014, 15, 16, 17. I listened to his Ask Gary V podcast on the way to school, in school, um, when I had my first job and threw in my paper rounds. And that was weird. I started an online Instagram that will name Nameless that was a kind of blog for entrepreneurs where I'd reshare their entrepreneurs' stuff, and that was cringy. I started with my friend Kieran McCracken, who is a wonderful guy, one of my close friends to this day. He's my only friend that I keep in contact with from home who came to my, my talk at Press Academy. Me and him created a business. Him and I created a business. I'm selling Snapchat filters to, to restaurants at that age. Um, we did weird things as a kid, really weird things. And you felt so, so shame for it. Even if the person, the other people didn't know that you were doing it, you felt shame. But those are the experiences that have made me, me. By being alive, the chances of us being in this social dynamic are literally zero. Um, the chances of being born are 400 trillion to one. So it's my duty to be weird. It's just such my, it's such my duty to show up as me. Because only now, being on this podcast, sharing all these weird facets of my life, now I can be relatable. If I was to polish myself as this super successful, um, middle-class person that likes fine wine and ski holidays, I'd be doing role, model at a, role modeling at the service. But by nature of me being against the grain, I've had, to, I've had experiences that have been against the grain. Mm. Doing this is weird. Doing this is so fucking weird. It is. We're nerds, man. We are fucking super nerds. Um, I'm a super nerd. You're a super nerd. But we're so content with it, uh, and we find our tribe, and we find eventually find the people that subscribe to that. I have the most amazing friends who listen to podcasts, are into self development, and go to stand up comedy clubs. The stand up comedy scene is full of misfits. The podcasting sphere is full of misfits. Um, but eventually, you find how to fit into a group of misfits. So if I was to talk to that person, I'd be like, don't worry, continue developing these weird traits and tastes mm -hmm. and skills and one day you're going to find other people that love that stuff and it's going to be an, there's going to be an environment that validate that and people are going to thank and praise you for that. Um, there's a quote that I love is that the ego is only available to receive praise, not love. So if I were to pres pr uh, presume myself as this person that I'm not and you were to say, David, I love you, I love I love the fact that you love ski holidays, which I don't, right? Oh, I love that you love Prosecco, which I don't, right? I wouldn't feel that at all. Mm, absolutely. I would never feel that. But if I were to say, David, uh, I fucking love dark humour and um, punching people in the face at the gym, <laughs> and you were to say, David, I love that too, I would feel that. I would absolutely feel that. Um, but also from a self-development point of view, if you show up as someone else and you get feedback on mm. maybe how you could improve, you're never going to improve on an ego. So I think I would tell my younger self that quote of um, that quote of extraordinary people 
ordinary people get ordinary results, extraordinary people get extraordinary results. Um, and to embrace his weirdness. Mm. And there's such a culture and I know particularly in Glasgow and, and Scotland anyway, it's like as soon as someone, you know, starts to try to achieve something or they uh, or they um, are ambitious, people can be quite quick and quite cruel to kind of like cut them down to size and say who do you think you are and it's all that stuff I experienced as a as a pro and stuff like that as well as like you know people are quite quick to no not just criticize because criticism is welcome in a lot of areas but almost try and bring you down a peg is um is that something that, that you've experienced there was one time when i started the podcast i was maybe episode between five and ten um and i was on a night out i was on a night out and no, sorry, between episode one, yeah, it was episode one and ten, I was on a night out and a friend of a friend came up to me and showed me his phone. And in that phone was a group chat of a bunch of guys that I went to school with and one of them just pinged in a screenshot of my podcast or a screenshot of my Instagram of the podcast and was basically saying, like, ha, this is gimpy or cringy were the words that they used. And I remember feeling those feelings that young David felt Again, oh, really? not well, fitting in and doing something that was yeah. a bit weird and that being yeah. um, amplified to the tribe. I remember feeling that a little bit. Oh. But I carried on doing what I was doing. And then two, well, two years on, um, after interviewing Sir Tom Hunter, um, I remember going on a night out to the same place and the person that messaged that screenshot into the chat saw me on a night out, bought me a drink and said, David, look, I listened to your podcast. And I just said, played, 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 downloaded, downloaded, downloaded. Oh. And listened and played to every single podcast. And I think they call it tall poppy syndrome, whereby with one poppy in a poppy farm, it gets too, too big. They right. chop it down to size. And they only start to like you. People only start to like you and validate you until you've established yourself. Mm. Um, and again, they could only validate me through the names that I had on the podcast. Right. Um, or how well it was doing in terms of metrics, but they will never back you from when it's a, a dangerous move. And I guess it comes from an evolutionary psychology and evolutionary behavioral science point of view, whereby if you were part of a tribe and you were to act out uh, from the culture and values of the tribe, then you'd be a danger to the tribe. You'd attract mm. attention from um, from opponents and then Absolutely. the whole tribe's at risk. So perhaps that's what's going on. And maybe by s you'll never get slagged by someone that's doing better than you. Mm. And I think it's because me having a voice and them screenshotting that maybe that's comforting them the fact that they didn't have a voice yeah the fact that they've recognized a part of a tribe and that they're conforming and that they can't embrace their weirdness maybe that's why they were doing that and i kind of recognized that a little bit when i saw that i said oh how lame must it be for them to take so much time out of their day to feel so many different emotions towards me doing something that i'm truly fulfilled and um given purpose by Imagine being at a point in your life where you have to call that out. Mm. It said more about them than it did me. All forms of hatred are self-hatred in my belief, yeah. in my belief system. Um, I, I guess only now I'm aware of that. I think that's a very compassionate way to look at it. And, you know, very, you know, I, I'd maybe use the word sympathetic, but also could be, could be empathetic because it might have been something that you've experienced. And, and I hope the fact that now that they have attached some sort of success to the podcast and it's micro success. I'm not a Joe Rogan. It's just in my little community, it's doing pretty well. 
doing well for a wee guy from Prestwick. So it's not like a Rogan-esque kind of magnitude. But I really hope that inspires that person to find their voice. I, I, I would love for them to be like, oh, maybe I could start a podcast or maybe I could document my life online or do something that's a bit different. I hope it gives them the courage that they might lack or need yep. to do the things that they love and to, to, to deviate from the tribe. And that's why I do the podcast is to show so many different roadmaps of what's possible and the outcomes attached to those roadmaps. Yeah. To say there's no one route that fits all. In fact, by doing that, by by being normal, you're regressing to the average. Um, again, showing all these, I want to show all these different routes, and hopefully that person has taken inspiration and done something a little bit different um, in their life that gives them more meaning and fulfillment, purpose. Absolutely, and one thing that I really like about about that message and and what what you're doing with the podcast and your experiences. In terms of your pivotal moments, um, you know your, your earlier journey and like listening to podcasts, which a lot of people weren't doing, is that you know there's so much there's so much continuity and what you're saying and what you do from a compassionate angle, like you can really see through your work that you are genuinely invested in helping others. You're genuinely invested in like sharing content sharing the the um the lessons that you have learned and what's really worked for you so that it could hopefully help others as well and you know it's a really it's a really heartwarming message and it's 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 really a breath of fresh air um because there is so much content out there just now and you know some of it can be quite down your throat and intrusive and maybe a bit toxic in, in some cases where you know it's 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 very in your face but I think the way you've come across it's very humble and But but there is times where I have deviated from that mate um and like going through this kind of corporate system um you learn to kind of polish your accent a little bit and speak very enunciated mm. and dress and dress a certain way and kind of have certain mannerisms um i even remember when i spoke to her majesty the queen uh it was on it was in it was under wraps for a month the fact that i did this and yeah. had this really intimate experience over it or was Zoom with the queen um where we spoke and of course i polished my voice for speaking to the queen like i speak in the most pronounced way possible and i had this group chat of friends and i remember sending it to them waiting for confetti and celebrations and they just basically were like David why are you speaking like a wanker <laughs> and it's because I had polished my voice so much and I understand there was certain conditions to why I had to do that mm. but I did change myself to, mm. to, to fit that and there's there's been times where I've went back to my old tribes and acted this weird polished corporate way and they've kind of cut me down in a good way like don't rem remember like remember your interest David remember that you're still this lad from the scheme don't forget that and my flatmate Keegan, um, who is one of my best friends and closest thing I have to a brother, really, he keeps me in check yeah. um, when I'm acting out of line. Um, I guess it's in a really healthy, constructive mm. way as well. He won't let me forget that there, there's merit in my background and, and hard work and struggle. Um, he won't let me get too egotistical. And same with my sister. My sister's the first person to humble me. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> is she? Um, that's how we express love is by slagging each other. She'll keep me down to size. So I'm I'm really lucky that I have these people 
as well uh, that will radiate my performance uh, and celebrate it on the way up, help me and give me comfort and care when it's on its way down. And when it's completely out of line, yeah. they will um, redirect that back into what it should be. Um, and I think that's really important. Have someone to celebrate your praises, be there for your losses, but also direct you when you're stepping out of line. And my sister, Keegan, uh, my friend Taylor, who's really close to me, and my friend Lewis are people that I really kind of trust on to do that. Yeah. And um, and if you're at the gym as well, you've got to mention that I'll, pu- I'll punch you about if you get a bit cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> you just punch me about Phil. <laughs> That's why I didn't mention you. Guys, don't actually do that. Um, uh, your gym are actually very welcome, <laughs> to be honest with you. I'll, they say I'll, David can tell you that. <laughs> I'll insert some clips from this morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, like... It's great that you've got those those roots. So you, you spoke about like obviously having a good team around about you, you know, keeping you grounded. Um, your sister, um, Keegan, and other, you know, close friends. But obviously, change comes through working on yourself, David. Like, you know, you you don't like you say you don't get extraordinary results for being extraordinary, and sometimes that means like making changes, and sometimes those changes are extraordinary. And that could be changes in language, how 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 you talk, um, these are these are developments and you are and your skills and how you dress and how you present yourself. And particularly I know in the corporate world as well, like a lot of that stuff it's like it's, it's judged, like it, it, you kinda need to be on point and have the correct appearance if you're dealing in you know, with business to business transactions, if you're dealing with like millions of pounds, like if somebody's talking serious cash or serious business, you need to look the part and sound the part, right? So there's obviously a functionality behind those changes. It's not like you're just doing it at ego or yeah. something like that. Because um, in one, you know, application of your behavior might not be appropriate in one environment to another. So, say for example, like, you're talking to, to a child, like you're going to dial your language down so that they could understand that, right? Mm-hmm. As well, if you're like in a high level kind of business corporate setting, you're you're then going to like adjust your language to suit, right? So these these things are actually like skill, skills that you've learned. Yeah. Where did you learn this? Is this something you learned on your own, or is it something that you've been taught in? I guess my work. Um, it must be my work. Um, just through mirroring other people. Even maybe even at school as well. Um, you would see how the popular kids would act, which would be quite outspoken and charismatic and jokey. And they got certain rewards for doing that. Mm. Then I'd go into the workplace maybe later on in my life and I would see people acting a certain way and talking a certain way and having this vernacular and... I even use the word vernacular there to describe vocabulary or wording, right? What does vernacular mean? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of like someone's kind of tongue, right? Yeah. Um, but I would see that get rewarded. So I think understanding that in different environments, different ways of speaking get kind of worded, uh, get, sorry, get praised, kind of reinstilled the importance of doing that. And doing my stand-up comedy course learned, taught me how to take subjects, package them in certain ways, and that being rewarded as well. Mm. Um, so I think stand-up comedy in my work and then just kind of observations as a kid, just seeing how much different demeanours and different environments 
we're praised, but it comes at a kind of cost as well. Yeah, you say that's quite intelligent to be able to chame- be a chameleon. Yeah. I guess a lot of people from working class backgrounds are kind of slagged for having slang. They're told that they're un- unintelligent and uncultured, but in fact, you're so cultured and intelligent if you can shapeshift between different um, forms of um, speaking. But again, as I've developed, I'm not quite at the same level. Um, I'm not quite the mold of someone who works in these kind of corporate environments in terms of my values, my my interests and how I present myself because I still have these working class roots. But I'm also a bit more different than the people that I grew up with, right? Because I do have new hobbies and interests. I do love podcasts and self-development, which are typically middle class kind of um, enjoyments. Um, so I don't really fit in there anymore, but also don't fit in this kind of newfound environment. So it's kind of weird straddling this middle ground mm. and getting at peace with that. Uh, and sometimes I do kind of, reg- I don't want to say regress, but I'll go back to that working mm. class slang. I was on a podcast with my one of my closest friends, Darren Connell, who's a comedian, and you may have seen that that was a bit more slang and kind of looser in language. And then the next day I would be public speaking at work and I'd be very mm. polished, but it does create an effect of like, I don't really belong in either of these places. Mm. Um, but then again, I have this environment of friends my sister, Keegan, and my other friends who celebrate growth, which is nice, and they're on their own path of growth. And I think it's that growth mindset that people can change and that can be rewarded, and that is a good thing. I think them having that mindset gives me comfort mm. in that. Um, whereby, like we were speaking about this topic, tall poppy syndrome, the others who may be from back home will think, why is David talking like that? He's getting too big, let's chop him down. Whereas I've got friends who celebrate... Mm continuous improvement mm. and that can be in terms of language and how you dress and your tastes and traits so I do have a good tribe who celebrate that but there's a while where I was like ah, I don't really belong anywhere and that gave me the same feelings that I felt at school I don't really belong anywhere yeah um again it's something I'm still wrestling with but I do have people that mm. validate this kind of misfit culture yeah. um and I guess the stand-up comedy scene is again a kind of world of misfits absolutely I mean, the, the language-based stuff is like, obviously, you know, I think it's, it's difficult for people to, to process that change if they're close to you as they might see it as, as unauthentic. But that's just surface value stuff. Like, really, at the core of anybody's, you know, being or personality, it's sure their core values that make them. And the, the language is then, like, could be an, an expansion of, of, of their development. And one thing I've noticed again as continuity with you is is your core values are very much um consistent and continual. And you know, that's that's something um that I respect a lot about you. And it, 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 like I said, I said this earlier, it's like it's, it's obvious it come it comes across to me personally, um, as 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 an individual, but like you can see it and in, in the work that you do. Um that's the, that's the best compliment I could ever get, mate. Yeah. Honestly, there's very few compliments that I would hold so close. So I do appreciate that. that and it's the truth. It's, it's feedback. It's like, it's, it's, it's how I feel about the matter. And you know that I wouldn't say something like that, like, for, for, for the sake of it, like, it's, it's the correct thing to say. Um, equally so, if we're in the gym and, you know, you're dropping your hand here, you're dropping your hand out. I'll give you feedback on that. You know, I'm sure you would. I mean, in other areas as well. 
Um, like for example, if I was hosting a podcast, <laughs> and if that ever happened in some weird alternate reality, nah, I wouldn't try that. <laughs> if you like brought me in your house and filmed a podcast, um, so yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely something that you know I I don't a lot on you, and I think that it's, it's shown a lot in this conversation. It really is. It's something one of the main things that I've noticed is 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 a, the the continuity there, and that's why you know hearing your story. That's why I think it, it could be so valuable for anybody listening, and that's because to, as far as I'm aware, the development by David po- podcast is origin stories to help transform people's lives and help develop them. Yeah, help improve them, <laughs> and you're you're the embodiment of that. You you are the you are the origin story. This is like you are the brand, and this is why it's so important. I feel for your message to be behind us, and not encourage as well. You've been really courageous putting yourself in that seat. Like I know how tough it is. <laughs> like, and I spoke with Stephen Beatty and stuff like that as well. Like. That's that's ain't easy, but a different dynamic dynamic is you've put me in the driving seat of your baby and your life, and that's the difference between how I feel about your podcast and other podcasts. I never really thought about it like that. And I'm not here to like show, oh, woe is me, my life's been so tough, and look how great I am now. It's nothing to do with that. Um, I would never like, I'd like someone to check me if I, I I was doing that. And I remember when I came to you, we're speaking about feedback and having a really good ecosystem of people that are willing to give you feedback and not sh- sh- cut you dead to size. I remember coming to you with this idea of maybe we'll do this 100th episode where the roles are reversed and I'll be number 100. And you jumped on that, like, that's that's an amazing idea. I would really encourage you to do that. And every time I doubted it, because you, you might remember, I, I've said two or three times in the lead up to this, I feel like it's a bit indulgent, me doing this. You reminded me why this is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not here to show rags to riches because I'm not rich. I'm, I work a salary. I don't get, I get my cost covered for the podcast through sponsors when I, when I have sponsors. I work a nine to five job as an, a senior apprentice. I'm not, I'm Sir Tom Hunter. But I'm better than I once was. Life is better than it once was. And I just want to share with other people that it can get better. Mm-hmm. But you need to take control over that. You are not defined by your outcome. If by your, You are not defined by your background. You're not defined by what happened to you. In fact, that's your reason to progress. So you can showcase to others. If you can do it, others can. If I can do it, everyone can. I'm not this lucky breakaway success. It's just taking agency, taking personal responsibility, and using that as super fuel to achieve your wildest ambitions and dreams and not being embarrassed to do that and to have that mindset. Don't be embarrassed to be ambitious. Yeah. There's so much courage and ambition, so much courage and ambition because in so many environments, Especially in Scotland, ambition is shot down. It, it's brave to be ambitious in uh, our world. And and you could even say risky. It's, it's risky. 
So risky. So risky because people will end up wanting what you have and taking taking that from you. So yeah, I just want to showcase that if I can have any sort of positive transgression that others can too. And it doesn't need to be like in rags to riches. If you're in an environment that's not full of purpose and full of hope and comfortable, you can take certain little steps to find your own apartment or get a new job or find a partner that makes you fulfilled. It doesn't have to be like extraordinary. It just has to be better. And I'm really proud that you validated the idea of me coming on this podcast to share that message. Absolutely. And you spoke about like validation and, you know, people that are important to you. And, you know, one thing that I experienced from being on the podcast is, do you know what? Like, I just, I just went on as like, I've just really trusted you, right? And one of the things that I really experienced after it, one of, I'll tell you what, one of the things I was really worried about was that people would think that, you know, I'm doing this for attention or like, you know, this kind of stuff, like, let's get the violin out so David can talk about like his past and stuff like that. Cause you know, cause some people might think that, right. And you know, that, that's not how I wanted to come across. Like I was same as yourself as like, I want to put my, you know, my experience out there and, and hopefully, you know, people can, can be inspired and, and they can, and, you know, and they, they were go through that. And they really were. Remember we did that. One of the, uh, we're speaking about celebrations and, Highlights, I can't believe I didn't mention this. One of the right. most profound moments of my life, actually. One of the most profound validations of this podcast was doing the live show at your gym, Your Life Mary Hill, where you got your whole gym and community in, hear your story and to hear my skills yeah. of bringing out your story. And people were crying, people were clapping and celebrating. That that was unbelievable. That's exactly why I did this podcast. Yeah. Um, that universal level of knowledge stories and emotions was developed in that room everyone felt a similar way and heard the same thing and understood the same battle and communicate that with each other that was that was really rich um and so you again you taking that risk and coming on the podcast you being courageous as to sharing your story even in your small tribe yeah. developed such a positive result and then there's thousands of other people through the, the viral content that we put out of the podcast that there's, there's a thousand impressions of people that felt positively inspired to make a change that you'll never know that even happened because it's never been verbally communicated back to you. Um, and hopefully this podcast does the same, even if it gets 100 views. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that's 100 people that have a little spring in their step, or at least 50 people that have a little spring in their step. Um, but again, um, you being courageous, um, I allowed for that to happen, mate. And I just want some micro version of that. Because um, we go places and people recognise you for your story, which is amazing. And that, like, that was a really special night for, for myself and, you know, it was it was emotional, it was it was challenging, like, one thing I really struggled was kind of watching myself saying these things as well, but I had yourself and my friends and my family by my side, we had the, the, the children there uh, from the, my students, my own son as well, and it was such a profound impact, actually, like, recording the, pro the podcast and the going in depth into you know like articulating my own personal experiences and 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 then putting on the big screen in, in front of my family the family at new life gym and that those that is my family that's my tribe and it's kind of like 
I tried to get sound of fire and we tell a story and, you know, it was a, the first time I told it in that, that detail publicly and I was, I was scared, I was worried and I do care about what other people think about me who are in my, in my tribe. I do, I, I care about that greatly and sometimes I even worry about it. Is that something that, that you think about? Or is that something you worry about? Or is it something that you embrace or enjoy? It means the world to me. It really does. My... Well, especially when my dad does it. Because I've been chasing... I used to chase this validation throughout my entire life. Um, When I hear through... He will never tell me directly, but when I get to go to these veteran... Like... Uh, breakfast and lunches with him when I spend time with his comrades and his mate Benny will go oh David that's amazing that you won that award last week or David that's amazing you podcasted Sunita and I'm like how how does he know about it it's because my dad's talking about me he's so proud of me that he's mentioning me every single week in these um in, in, in these breakfasts um and I remember being at the Burberry Awards um and this uh, Royal Lancaster was it no the Grosvenor in Mayfair right a place that a boy like me should never be anywhere near Unless I've got a spray paint can in my hand, right? Uh, it's like spraying the walls. But I remember being in that room and FaceTiming my dad, like Stormzy and look, and Paloma Faith and Sunita and Dame Kelly Holmes were all there. And a bunch of people in the corporate world were also there. And um, I FaceTimed my dad from the balcony. And he had a can of tenants in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And he, I said to him, we did it. Um, that, that meant the world to me and being a role model for my sister and her being proud of me in my journey because she's faced the same and she's been through everything that I've been through yeah. she, everything I speak about is my sister's story losing my, from losing my mum to being in that household growing up mm -hmm. she has been part of that evolution entirely and the fact that she can give me a pat on the back and say well done and show me love for that it means the world and my friends as well so it does, I do care about what these people think of me yeah. Um, but beyond that, don't give a I don't give a crap what anyone else beyond mm. that core tenant or that core tribe, um, because it, it 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 shouldn't mean anything to me. What? Why should I allow them to deviate this mission that I'm on to help others? What does that say about them if they care so deeply to negatively criticize me trying to help others? It says more about them than it does me. So I don't really care about their opinion anymore. But right. when I was younger, at 15 and 14 and 13, anything that I would put out into the world, my own voice, how I dressed, my opinions, my interests, I would care so much and I would change to, to, to suit the norm then. But now it's a reminder that I'm on a mission to to help people. So besides my core tribe, no one really matters. Absolutely. I don't know how much, like, even, like, for example, how how like daily you hold your podcast audience like close to your heart like when I hear you talking about like your listeners like because I, I know you're getting like I don't know you're getting like tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of like a, a, a likes and views accumulating like a hundred yeah. podcasts like but like I know like a wee guy like Davey when he was 15 could 
maybe 16, right? <laughs> Soon if a 15 year old shouldn't be messaging a 16 year old David could be like, by the way, uh, David, um, I'm a young guy living in a scheme. Any advice for me? I, I know, like, you would get back to them mm. and you would be like, you know, you, you would be supportive and like, when it comes to the opinions of the podcast itself, yeah. um, each individual episode, I would rather have one message than a million plays. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm really lucky that it's not me that, at times that's getting that validation. It's other people. Yeah. It's the 90 other, 99 other guests. And, and I've noticed that as well. It's I, I've never shared my story on the podcast, so it's never me that's getting the yeah. praise. It's um, the other people. My, my job is to make yeah. them sound and look as good as possible through without lying through their own story and when they compliment these little teenagers or 20 something year old guys who are lost and they hear your story or Stevens or 98 others and they say I've done X because of Y it means the world and the fact that I can be the vehicle for that again when I talk about who I am not what I am I'm, a, yeah. I'm someone that believes in a universal um, state or level of knowledge feelings stories and emotions the fact that i can be a vehicle for that and the podcast can be a vehicle for that and someone reach out, reaches out to share that means that i've already i've already completed my life's work i really have and anything else from now onwards 100 onwards is a bonus um maybe sharing my story is the the finale of tying that knot and now i get to go tie some more knots absolutely and in terms of your uh, your guests and and your listeners um, I just wanted to uh, bring up Stephen uh, Beatty with you. Um, Steve, Stephen's podcast was the first one I'd listened to uh, before I before I came on, and it was it was an inspiration for for me to to do mines as well. And um, through that, on on network, we've kind of became friends or joined, kind of like became pals. Um, if if Stephen was to like say something about you, like a statement or anything, what would he think he would say? He would be thankful, I think. He'd be thankful for giving him a platform to share his voice um, and share his story. I know he's always wanted to help other people and he has through everything that he does with becoming a doctor, being uh, training for the Royal Marines, that's for other people. And I've given him another vessel to, to share his voice and share his story and that's, that's done well we, we got hundreds of thousands of clips on that and so many people reached out on his story who are struggling in the same areas that he grew up in and I think he would be thankful that I used his story to help others yeah. and you're one of your best pals Keegan and flatmate what do you think he would say about you? oh he'd say I'm a I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a manic I'm a manic <laughs> Um, what would he say about me? I don't know actually. I think he would say I'm someone that's he's thankful to experience life, and yeah, he's you see I'm he's thankful that I'm someone that experiences life with him. Um, he's the closest thing I currently have to a brother, and we get to have so many highs and lows celebrate together, and I think his highs motivate me to become bigger and better, and my highs become become a kind of sounding board for him to become bigger and better and it's when he goes to war I go to war when I go to war he goes to war and I thank him hugely 
for celebrating. He pays such close attention to everything that I do. And he hears me rambling so much. And I think he would say, keep having those ideas, David. One day, one of those ideas will pay off. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned your uh, your ex had said some stuff about your uh, language and stuff like that. So we actually have a surprise for you. She's actually here right now. Fuck off. <laughs> 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 so remember the time where the Bobby McVeigh thing when you said he was coming in? It's just revenge. Dude, I thought you were being so secret. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck me. Oh, oh my God. Oh. Oh. I had to take the seat. I think I so, pissed it. Uh, um, I'm glad I had that, that impact. So um, I actually have, um, going back to a more serious note, we actually have um, a, not a statement from, from your ex, don't worry, that was a complete joke. Um, as distasteful as, as yours, I might add, with the Bobby McVitie thing, because um, Bobby was actually messaging me and saying, come down to the jam and all about me, stuff like that. He's now competing in the, the World Championships. So basically, I nearly got my head kicked in off like a, a, an elite-level athlete when I'm retired. Um but uh, going back to uh, some of your, your friends and your uh, guests, uh, I've actually been in touch with Keegan, and Keegan um, has given me a statement that I would like to read out with you. I've asked him what he thinks about you. David is not only an exceptional friend who constantly supports and uplifts me, but he is also an unyielding source of inspiration. His dedication and hard work and his endeavours are truly inspiring. And his determination and bravery make him a remarkable character. In our friendship, I've learned the importance of persistence. And he inspires and motivates me to keep pushing forward no matter what challenges we face. That was Keegan. Sheesh. And far, mate. I... Also been speaking with um, Stephen Beatty, that was um, your guest in one of your uh, top most shared and inspiring stories that I've ever uh, listened to. I first met David through a mutual friend on Facebook. I wrote a post about my time in jail and turning my life around. A mutual friend put us in touch and David asked me to be on his podcast. The podcast has helped open up many doors for me. I've been asked to be an ambassador for an athletics trust charity to help get people from disadvantaged backgrounds involved in athletics. I've also been asked to go on one of the UK's biggest podcasts next month as well and spread his story. I've had countless messages since doing the podcast from people telling me how I managed to make them believe they can turn their lives around as well. I've also met yourself, David. You're giving me the chance to do something I've always wanted to do, which is have an MMA fight. Something I doubt I would have a, I would ever been able to do if it wasn't for David putting you and I in touch. <laughs> okay. David's podcast is as to David's podcast is to bring origin stories to the wider audience to inspire people to believe in themselves despite the mistakes they've made. The countless messages I've had and I'm sure you have had as well since you recorded your podcast with David, highlight he's achieving his goal. A genuinely good guy who wants to use his platform to help others. The world needs more people like David McIntosh. 
The podcast has helped me massively to be proud of where I've came from and not dwell on the past. That's Stephen Beatty. I've also been in touch with uh, a couple other people as well. One of them is quite a, a short message. It's a, it's a very sh- short message. Uh, a, a lady of a few words in this instance. This is your, from your Auntie Lynn. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by your success and I'm super proud of you, David. Also, a message from your Uncle Neil. I actually spoke with your Uncle Neil on the phone. Uh, we had a lovely chat and uh, I can... Don't know. I can I can sense aspects of of you and him or this continuity in that very energetic guy. David has many talents. I've played a very small part in influencing David. My wife, Lynn, however, was a much more influential figure. David's David's success is down to him. You don't get a medal for participation. You need to walk the walk, and David has done that. It's dedication application and hard work that has got him to where he is today and the most remarkable thing is that he does it so selflessly we're very proud of David for who he is and what he's achieved that was your uncle and we have also I've also well I've also been um conspiring with your sister on this we have been working together as a team and uh, what can I say what a remarkable person what a remarkable young lady too too right smart you know um, kind hearted just really really good person and really helpful in this for me as well David is not just an inspiration, he's my favourite person. I've always looked up to him and wanted to be his best friend for as long as I can remember. He's always supported me and given me the drive to get things I want in life. He's taught me important life lessons about strength, kindness and resilience. And don't get me wrong, I've taught him lessons too. Such as how to put a bed sheet on. <laughs> David has displayed how to overcome challenges and reach for your dreams. He's a role model who makes you believe that you can achieve great things in your own life. If it wasn't for David, I wouldn't be sitting where I am today. I'm living my best life all because of David. He's the funniest person I know besides myself, obviously. He makes me laugh and I shouldn't be, like at a mother's funeral. He also makes me cry out of happiness. David deserves everything he's worked for. He has broken through the barriers and he continues to lead by example for many others like me. If anything, it's hard to catch up with him. He's starting to make me look bad. But in all seriousness, David is one of a kind person, my favourite person. No matter how much we fall out, he'll always be my number one. 
I know Mum would be proud of us both, but especially you, David. I think we'll finish up there. Oh, thank you, mate. Fuck. That's harder than I thought. Thank you, mate. That's what people think you, man. Oh, reason to keep going. Put another hundred. Hmm. Hi, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> oh.